This is Medieval Death Trip for Monday, December 21st, 2015. Episode 20, Concerning Trouble with the Inmates of Dale Abbey. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. And happy solstice, everyone. The darkest night of the year, um, if you're in the Northern Hemisphere at least. And it is beginning to feel a little bit like Christmas around here, um, but the season seems to be lagging a bit for me uh, for some reason. Uh, I feel it only just got started, uh, and yet here it is Christmas less than a week away. Well, perhaps returning to the little chronicle of Dale Abbey will help get us in the mood. Last episode, we heard the story of the origins of this abbey in the vision of a baker who became a holy hermit and made a dwelling in a little cave in a place called Deepdale. And today, we're going to hear how this small, local, religious roadside attraction was turned into an established religious community that would eventually become Dale Abbey. But this development does not exactly go smoothly, and the quaint tale of the sanctuary of the Hermit of the Dale takes a few rather ugly turns. What's interesting, though, uh, and I'll have more to say about this after the text, is that even in recounting what is essentially a narrative of repeated failure to establish this abbey, our author, um, a 13th century canon of the abbey named Thomas de Musca, continues to project a deep pride in this place, which is his home. And there's something about that which makes this feel Christmassy, even if some of the specific incidents in the story are decidedly bleak. Um, Indeed, the the Christmas tone of this piece is probably a bit more in the bleak midwinter, uh, or O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and Ransom, Captive Israel, uh, than it is Deck the Halls with Boughs of Holly. But let's get straight on into our story. You can get more details about the Chronicle of Dale Abbey in our previous episode. And indeed, if you're just joining us, it might be worth your while to go back and listen to that one first. Um, Though there isn't really that much in the way of plot details that carry over, um, to be honest. Today's text opens with a brief survey of the original aristocratic patrons of the place, uh, the Grendon family, headed by one Serlo de Grendon and then proceeds to the efforts to settle a house of canons in the Dale. In addition to pride of place, uh, you might also detect a little bit of factional pride as well. I won't go into any great detail about different religious orders, um, but like political parties, their members uh, have a tendency to be competitive with each other over who's actually leading the holier life. In this case, our author and his fellows are Premonstratensian canons, uh, which is an order that has its roots with the Abbey of Premontre in northern France. In the late 12th century, uh, the period covered by today's reading, the Premonstratensians were really beginning to flourish in England, uh, but they were a rather new entity. Uh, The more common and much longer established order uh, of canons were the Augustinian or Austin canons. Uh, We won't worry too much about the doctrinal differences between the two, other than to perhaps note that the Premonstratensians were a bit more monk-like and rigorous in uh, their religious discipline. Furthermore, in a lovely bit of convenient contrast, uh, the Austin canons were also known as the Black Canons because they wore a black 
uh, habit, and the pre-monster tensions were white cannons because they wore a undyed white habit. Um, that might sound familiar to those of you who do know a little bit about monastic orders, um, because it's very similar to the rivalry between the uh, establishment Benedictines or black monks and the reformist uh, Cistercian uh, or white monks. Our author makes a few sly references to this black-white distinction in today's text, um, and I'll clarify, because he doesn't, uh, that the first group of canons who come to the Dale are black canons. Uh, so a bit of this clerical rivalry creeps into the telling of the story. All right, let us now return to the Chronicle of Dale Abbey, as given in the 1883 translation by W.H. Sinjin Hope. At that time, the Grindons were most famous in this land, and men of great power. And the aforesaid Serlo had an aunt, who was also his spiritual mother, in that she had taken him from the sacred font. To this lady, the said Serlo gave, as long as she lived, the place of Deepdale, with its appurtenances and all the land, cultivated and waste, which is between the lane that extends from the north gate of Boyha towards the west, as far as Lake Cocksmith and Brunsbrook. And because such spiritual mothers are called in English Goms, this lady herself they used to call by the common appellation, the Gom of the Dale. This lady had a son, Richard by name, a youth of good disposition, whom, when he had studied the sacred writings, after he had taken holy orders in due course, she caused to be ordained priest, that in her chapel of Deepdale he might minister about holy things, which he also did. Moreover, the mansion of the same matron was in the upper part of our garden, toward the south in the place where there is now a pond which is called Brother Roger de Aylesby's. When our fathers made that same pond, they found at the bottom of it many worked stones which had formerly belonged to the above said mansion. At the time when the house of Cawk was Mother Church of Repton, God, who agreeably disposes all things, willing to exalt more graciously the place of Deepdale, the aforesaid venerable matron consenting, nay, rather managing it, the said Serlo de Grendon called together the canons of Cawk and gave them the place of Deepdale. Moreover, the said Richard the chaplain took the regular habit among them, and as Humphred told me, of whom I have made mention above, the prior of these same canons was called Umfred, and he had as associates Nicholas and Simon, who had a short time before been the schoolfellow and companion of William de Grendon in Paris and Richard, the chaplain aforesaid, and two others whose names have escaped my memory, uh, Umfred, with those canons, there performed their ministry for days and years. The aforesaid canons, therefore, having taken root in the same place and being comforted by God, built for themselves a church, a costly work, and other offices. Humphred, their prior, even visited the Roman Curia and obtained the excellent privilege which we still have concerning the confirmation of the place, in the rite of burial and of celebration, even when the land was under an interdict, and very many other liberties. About that period flourished Albinus, first abbot of Darley, shining forth with so great a token of holy and honest conversation that the interior of the cloister and the corner of the church may be perceived to this day to be redolent with the fragrance of the religion of such a father. Then began not only those of the race of Grendons, but also other fathers, noble and simple, to frequent the place of Deepdale, 
to endow it largely with their goods, and, at their decease, to leave their bodies to be buried there. I have heard it said, both credibly and worthy of trust, that in the same place there rest buried more than forty warriors, setting aside others, the noble and well-born of mixed sex, and numerous common people. Moreover, there reposes in the same spot Peter Cocos of Bathley, an anchorite of that place of cherished memory, of whose conversation, which in part I knew, and of his works, revealed by himself and others to me in full confidence, in future works, by the aid of God, solemn mention shall be made. And therefore, to the place itself, on account of the sanctity of the same, and the bodies of so many of the faithful in Christ, their reposing, devout honor and reverence are due. Therefore, for many courses of years, while the aforesaid canons sojourned in the aforesaid place, since they had been long separated from social intercourse of men, and to them thus secluded the pleasantness of the place was delightful, they began too remissly to hold themselves in the service of God in the divine observances. They began to frequent the forest more than the church, turning more to buffoonery than the benefit of their souls, more to hunting than to prayer or meditation. And since the whole land was forest, as above mentioned, the king, hearing of their unwanted conduct, on account of the game, caused them to withdraw from the place. Then they, resigning everything that they had into the hands of their patron, returned to the place whence they came, being compelled by necessity. Humphrey, their prior, withdrew to La Magdalene, and there for many days followed the life of a hermit. I, for my part, cannot believe that this happened accidentally, but by the will of him without whom neither the leaf of a tree floats down to the earth nor a sparrow falls to the ground. Oh, the height of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How incomprehensible are his judgments and unsearchable his ways! For who hath known the disposition of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? But the place that the Lord had chosen, he did not so leave desolate, for the divine power mocks at adverse things. For by degrees his clemency began to stretch forth the hand of his pity to greater and more wonderful things, that having rooted out the sycamores, he might put in cedars, instead of the black going away, bringing hither the white, and setting up the premonstratensions, as the following chapter will declare. Verily there came from Tuppum, which is a house of our order, six canons to tarry at Deepdale, having been invited by the advocate of the place. In truth, there was given to them the part of Stanley, in augmentation of their possession. But how, or by whom, I only know in part, but altogether I am uncertain. And to write uncertain things for certain, where the truth of each circumstance is discussed, I deem to be absurd. Nevertheless, this I most assuredly know that a certain lay brother who came with them from Tuppum first constructed the watermill in the park and finished it with immense labor and difficulty. Their prior was called Henry, and it behooved them to be, as also they were, great at labor, because they were much burdened by the frequent arrival of foresters and others. Nor had they much tilled land except that which had formerly belonged to the above-said Gom of the Dale, and Chasemore, in fact, one small caricat. For the Lord of Ockbrook kept for himself in his lordship the serfs and mansions of Boyag, which was situated in the place that is now called Boyag Meadow. When, therefore, these canons had sojourned seven years there in great poverty, 
they sold the tops of the oaks of the park, cutting them off at the middle, and having received the money, returned to Topham, their abbot recalling them. But the aforesaid Henry, their prior, who was very cunning in the fabrication of false money, withdrew to Toftworth, and there cohabited with a certain harlot of Morley, whom he had before foolishly known with the affection of filthy lust. Which, his abbot hearing, and enduring with reluctance that he disdained to return home with the brethren at his command, sent and caused him to be brought by force to Tulpham, who, having been taken with pain of the heart, was so far stimulated by diabolical device that in a hot bath, letting blood from both arms, by a spontaneous, nay, rather by an insane death, he ended his life. Solitary, therefore, soiled and sallow, sat the daughter of Zion, the church of Deepdale, bereft for a time of her previous indwellers. But the father of pity and God of all consolation, who had mercifully chosen that place with the eye of his clemency, looked down upon it and consoled it. Lest, therefore, that place lovely to God and venerable to men should be defrauded any longer of the divine observances, Don William de Grendon, whose name on account of the sure signs of his deserts is as sweet as honey in the mouth, sent and caused to be fetched hither five canons of Welbeck of the Premonstratingian order. Their prior was called William Bensight, under the abbot Richard de Southall, a man in every way in things temporal and spiritual well proved. Brother William de Hagneby was then canon of that church, but afterwards prior of this holy congregation when I took the habit of religion who himself had been accustomed to tell us many things. There remained indeed these aforesaid five men, having endured meanwhile on account of the asperity of the order in the greatest poverty many and diverse adversities. And when on a certain day one of them wished to draw up the lamps hanging before the altar, in a wonderful manner all falling downwards to the ground were broken to pieces. And having called the prior into the auditorium and received leave to speak, he said, amongst other things, let us go hence, because nothing prosperous happens to us, but all things incline to the contrary. And truly say I that the Lord has judged us unworthy of this place, or perchance has reserved it for others better than us. Whose words became true pledges of future events, as the issue of this affair afterwards proved, and the following circumstances will show. Not long afterwards there came to Deepdale, as he had done before, the abbot already spoken of, for the sake of visiting his brethren, wishing that all things should be right. And he found them enduring a very poor life, having few things in the granary, and fewer still for the bakehouse and brewery. Grieving for their necessities, the holy man said that it seemed painful and unjust that his brethren should be disordered by hunger and want in the desert, for whom he was able sufficiently to provide the necessary food and clothing at home, according to the rule and requirements of the order. Therefore, after he had returned to the monastery, he recalled the aforesaid brethren tarrying at Deepdale.
So this story does ultimately have a happy ending uh, with a fourth mission of canon colonists finally taking lasting root in Deepdale. Um, but we get this wonderfully tumultuous history before that happens. The first group of canons who actually turn a rather rustic hermitage and chapel into an abbey uh, end up turning the place into a kind of luxury resort. This community is essentially in the backyard of a manor house. Um, its chapel begins life as the chapel serving the house of the Gom of the Dale. And if you remember the number of clerks who were the younger sons of aristocrats, it's easy to see how these men who grew up enjoying the recreations of the gentry might find themselves unsupervised, giving in to the pleasures of hunting and feasting and living large like a lordly household. Then the second group of canons, this time of the ostensibly more disciplined premonstratingian order, move in and find themselves taxed by the locals beyond their means, um, despite the counterfeiting skills of probably the most memorable character in this whole story, Prior Henry, who, like the black canons before him, slips away into secular temptations, uh, an escape which turns out rather gruesomely uh, to be no escape at all. And then the third group avoids sin, but endures poverty uh, even beyond the requirements of their vows. So the tone of this story is quite an odd thing. Our author, uh, Thomas de Muska, tells us again and again what a holy place Deepdale is, selected as a site for holy living by St. Mary herself. Uh, and yet, after the first hermit, uh, who we heard about last episode, uh, and then a second hermit, who has a roadside conversion experience, um, after these, the first three religious communities that arrive all fail. The first two, with their rather spectacular falls into temptation and sinfulness, uh, as judged by the standards of the day. And the third, while being more spiritually upright, uh, suffers horribly and makes their own abbot feel guilty for sending them there. It's hard to reconcile this series of episodes with the peons our author sings to the holiness and specialness of his home. The second hermit, uh, whose story I skipped over, has a scene where he describes his own dream vision of the place to his traveling companions, and he says, quote, This veil which ye behold below us and which lies touching this hill is a holy place. Truly the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. Children which shall be born and grow up shall narrate to their children the great and wonderful things which the Lord will perform in that veil. That veil shall be white with the flowers of virtues and full of delight and happiness. This is a promise that the Chronicle does not quite deliver on. You might reasonably think that this is medieval death trip, and I've just pulled out the more distinctly macabre episodes of the story and ignored all the boring, nice stuff. Uh, well, that's not the case. Uh, last episode, we started at the beginning of the Chronicle. Uh, between that selection and today's text, there's about a page that covers the story of the second hermit. Uh, a man named Uthlagus. Um, and while it shares a very pretty vision, uh, it concludes on a rather eerie image. Uthlagus is given a vision and called to atone for his sins in that place, and so he leaves his companions on the road. In the words of the Chronicle, quote, And having embraced them, he departed from them, but whither he went was at that time unknown to them. There were certain who said that he went to Deepdale, 
and there in secret intercourse served his Lord continually, and with a happy end reposed there in the Lord. And then, after today's selection, you finally see the origins of the community that finally took root uh, up to Thomas's time. But this account is three-quarters about the negotiation between two noble families over endowing a new religious house on the site, uh, negotiations which end up with the place under the patronage of uh, Geoffrey de Salicosa Mara and his wife Matilda, who was the Lady Matilda who recounted the early history of the Dale in our previous episode. Once the land deals are struck, our author basically writes an ode to the undisputed sanctity of the Premonstratensian Abbey of Newhouse in Yorkshire, um, who sent a new crop of nine canons to set up the new community in Deepdale. And that's the end of the chronicle. There aren't any great miracles worked. There aren't any great teachings preserved and passed on. Though, to be fair, in today's selection, our author mentions that he intends to write up the wisdom of the anchorite Peter Cocos. Um, though, if this work was ever completed, it appears not to have survived. So you're left with this strange cognitive dissonance between claims that the place is self-evidently and almost unbearably holy and narratives of the actual human inhabitants having a hell of a time maintaining themselves there, uh, either materially or spiritually, or both. I will float one little narratological theory. Uh, I think I must have read this same kind of argument being applied to another text, but I can't recall what it was. Uh, anyway, the idea is that this chronicle is, in formula and pattern, uh, hagiography. Only instead of being a biography of the holy life of a person, it's of a place. I'd want to call that a geography or a topography, but those clearly aren't the right terms. Um, but just as many hagiographies are structured as redemption or trial and tribulation narratives, this one puts the place through the paces, through a series of falls from grace and humiliations before it's brought to the full flowering of its graces. Deepdale may claim Mary the Virgin Mother as its patron, but its story is closer to that of Mary Magdalene. One flaw in this reading, of course, is that most hagiographies, even those that put special emphasis on the saint's sinful early days, nevertheless deliver pretty extensively on the holy acts, teaching, and miracles that establish the actual sainthood. Uh, and that side of Dale Abbey is left peculiarly underdeveloped in this chronicle. Last episode, instead of a riddle, we had our second medieval mystery word. The word was borda, B-O-R-D-A. Now, there are lots of languages in which you'll find a form of this word. Old English has board, meaning a plank of wood or a board, uh, and similar words appear in most Germanic languages. But our borda is from medieval Latin, and it means a small house. The etymology of this Latin form of borda is unclear. It looks like it's probably a loan word into the Romance languages from the Germanic languages uh, and then into written medieval Latin. In the Romance languages, you have this use of borda meaning a cottage, with a set of related nouns for one who lives in a cottage. In Latin, this would be bordarius, or a cottager. Uh, a word that appears in the Doomsday Book to describe the lowest rank of villains. And how you get from planks to cottages is also a bit unclear. You might think there's a relationship to board as in room and board, or to take in borders. 
uh, but that appears not to be the case. Bored in the hospitality sense really does come from a bit of synecdoche, where bored refers to sitting at board with someone, meaning eating around a plank table, uh, as medieval and earlier tables were. And in English, to board as a verb, or boarding as a participle, meaning to put someone up, um, don't really come into use until the early modern period. Instead, one hypothesis is that borda began life as a neuter plural word, meaning a collection of boards, uh, and then it gets taken up as a feminine singular word, meaning a thing made out of boards, and hence a small cottage or hut. Uh, you can see a similar transformation um, happen with invoice, which began life as a plural word, as the plural of envoy or envoy, as we would say now, uh, a thing sent out or a message. The inventory documents that would be sent along with a cargo of goods are the invoys, I-N-V-O-Y-S, uh, which through the whimsy of early modern spelling becomes invoice, I-N-V-O-I-C-E. And that, rather quickly, starts getting used as a singular word, and thus a new plural, invoices, is created. But etymologically speaking, uh, invoices is a lot like saying mices or meeses, as in... I hate meeses to pieces. But all of that is a digression, uh, because the reason I picked borda as our word of the day is because of a word that comes from it. Borda, which already means a little house, acquires its own diminutive form, bordellus, which makes it into French as bordel and into Italian, and from there into modern English, as bordello. And a bordello is a bordello. It's a brothel. And brothel, by the way, isn't etymologically connected to bordel or bordello, uh, despite having so many sounds in common. Um, brothel derives from the Old English word uh, breothan, which means to go to ruin. So actually, if you want to refer to such an establishment in a non-judgmental way, uh, bordello would, I suppose, be the more polite term than place for ruined women, uh, which is what brothel literally means. And, of course, a bordello is what some would accuse the notorious prior Henry of turning Dale Abbey into, uh, what with keeping his mistress there. Or, as our translation puts it, a certain harlot of Morley, Morley being the adjacent village. The original Latin phrase is uh, muliercula de Morley, which shows us another sexually charged diminutive. Muliercula is the diminutive form of mulier, so she is his little woman. In classical Latin, this word can still mean just a servant girl or a working class woman, but over time, it gains more and more innuendo until it comes to mean a woman who is sexually available, uh, be it professionally or on an amateur basis. There's an interesting footnote to the story of Prior Henry and his little woman of Morley. After Henry VIII dissolved the English monasteries in the 1530s, Dale Abbey, like so many others, fell into ruin. And today, what remains is the humble hermit's cave, and one standing Gothic-arched window. But some of the original stained glass from the abbey was salvaged and incorporated into the windows of Morley Church, where it can still be seen today. One of the scenes depicted in these windows is rather interesting. Uh, here's the Reverend Carey's description of that window. 
One of the windows of Morley Church, which once adorned the refectory of Dale Abbey, has the representation of a monk manacled and standing before his superior, who is reading some homily to him from a book. The legend beneath interprets the scene, Take heed to thy ways, brother. There can be no doubt that this picture represents Prior Henry before his superior at Tulpham. It is probable, too, that so disgraceful an incident in the history of the convent was portrayed in the windows of the refectory that it might afford a wholesome warning to the brotherhood of the grievous end of one who presumed to violate his sacred vows of poverty, obedience, and chastity. Alas, I haven't been able to find any clear images of this window uh, on the web. Um, there's a few images of all the windows, but they're too small to make out details. So if any of you live near Morley in Derbyshire and want to send me a snap of it, uh, that would be super cool. Uh, until then, though, uh, that will remain on my to-do list for the next time I'm able to travel to the Peak District. Well, let's end with a riddle. Yuletide is, of course, the traditional English riddle-telling time. And as we approach the 12 days of Christmas, here's a riddle that's also about 12s. Here stands a tree with branches twelve. On every branch there are four nests, in every nest are seven birds, and each bird has its proper name. My tree will never cease to bear, world without end, it will be there. So once again, here stands a tree with branches twelve. On every branch there are four nests, in every nest are seven birds, and each bird has its proper name. My tree will never cease to bear, world without end, it will be there. Of what tree are we speaking? I'll be back with the answer and a new episode in the new year. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach us by Twitter, uh, at MDT Podcast, uh, or by emailing Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com, or by simply visiting the website itself and leaving a comment. Until next time, happy holidays, safe travels, and thanks for listening. <laughs>